does not change. And what Paul has for us here is an understanding that, listen, he has no confidence in the flesh. He is speaking to the church and he is calling them to a confidence that is in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. As he walked us through chapter 2 and we talked about the humility and the humiliation and the shame that Christ endured for us. He now brings us to chapter 3 and he's, this is his first final. So, you know, one person as I was reading, he said, this isn't like when a preacher says, I'm ending my message. That wasn't what this was. You know, preachers say, yeah, I'm wrapping up right now and then they talk for another 30 minutes. That happens sometimes. But that isn't what Paul was trying to do here. This was his first. He's coming around the corner in his communication and he is letting us know, he is letting the church of Philippi know, hey, there is this thing that I want you to grasp and it is this, is that we should rejoice in the Lord. We'll hear that again in chapter 4 when we get there. But he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And this becomes so important for us when we think about being stable. When we think about where our confidence is, it is where is our joy. Because our joy is always, <clears throat> excuse me, it's always going to be directly connected with what? It's going to be connected with our confidence. And so here's what I want you to think about this morning. Our confidence in Christ is only fully expressed when he is the only possible source for our stability. I want you to think about that. Our confidence in Christ is only fully expressed when he is the only possible source for our stability. Now, now when you think about this, it's easy. And, there, and, and when, when, you, when you say, I'm confident in Christ, it's easy to say that when everything is good, is it not? When everything is going good, it's easy to say, I am confident in the Lord. I am confident. My trust is in God Almighty. However, I just spoke to you a moment ago, and I, and I said when I was talking about being let down or, or experiencing something that was hurtful or painful in your life that changed your life, it is in those moments when your confidence in Christ is really expressed. That's when it's really tested. You know, I'd like to stand here and tell you that I believe that I would die for the cause of Christ. And I believe that I would, but I can tell you right now, I've never been put in that position. I haven't been put in the position where it was my life or me denying Christ. I haven't been put in that position yet. Now, I think that if I was put in that position, that I would be bold enough and I would stand firm. But you know what? I've heard of stories of people that love Jesus, passionate about Christ, and were in that moment where they had to either deny Christ or be killed. And you know what they decided to do? They decided to repent later. I let that sink in. <laughs> they decided to say, God, forgive me. I denied you before men. And then they decide to play that. Because what? Because it's easy to say that I will do something when you are tested, when we, when we stand, you know, before a minister or whoever, and we do our marriage vows, right? What do we say? You know, in sicker, you know, or in sicker for poor, whatever, you know, you know the thing. <laughs> for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, right? That's what it says, right? That, that's what it communicates. And so we say this until for better, for worse comes. See, it's easy to be in it for better, but when worse really comes, it's easy to say it one day. It's easy to communicate it one day. However, when, when worse comes, when sickness comes, when hardship comes, where is your confidence? Is it in Christ or is it in something else? You see, Paul was crystal clear. Our confidence is supposed to be in Christ. 
Our confidence is supposed to be in Christ and in Christ alone. The first thing I would ask you to repeat after me is this. See, our ability to rejoice in the Lord. All right, I know we're still sleeping, but come on now. Y'all got an extra hour of sleep last night. Here we go. Let's try it again. Our ability to rejoice in the Lord is proportionate to our confidence in him. Our ability to rejoice in the Lord is proportionate to our confidence in him. So Paul starts out, verse 1, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, period. Rejoice in the Lord. Everything that you've heard thus far, rejoice in the Lord. Have your joy in the Lord. And what is he saying this? He's saying this because he is making a contrast between having joy in the Lord and joy in personal accomplishments. Having joy, and we're going to see this in a moment as we walk through the rest of the text and what Paul is communicating, but he's saying rejoice in the Lord. Don't, don't, have, don't, don't have confidence in your flesh. Don't have confidence in your ability. Don't have confidence in, in, in your, your morality that seems so great. Don't let your confidence be there, but let your joy be in the Lord. Let your joy be in the one who died, the one who rose. Let your joy be in the Lord. That's what he's calling us to, to have a joy that is in our Lord. I, if our confidence is not firmly rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, check it out, our joy, our happiness, our contentment, all of those things are tied in together, will wane and be inconsistent rather than increase and be steady. Here's what, should, here's what should be happening. Our joy, our happiness, those are interchangeable words. Our contentment should be growing. It should become more steady and more stable. But if your joy is not connected to the Lord, if your contentment is not connected to the Lord, then what begins to happen is that joy, that contentment, that happiness begins to wane. It begins to waver. It becomes unstable in the midst of a world that is filled with instability. Now, I don't know about you, but I like stability. Come on now. Anybody, anybody ever been on a ship? Hallelujah. <laughs> and, and you know, whenever you're on a ship, right, I'm talking about like a cruise. Like I, I can only speak about a cruise. I, you know, I've never, never been on any other type of, well, I've been on like some boats and stuff like that. But like when you're on a cruise, you know, you don't, you don't realize, and maybe some of you do realize this, I don't know, but I didn't realize how, how much, you know, in the beginning, right, the first time, I didn't realize how much my body was actually acclimating to the fact that we were rocking all over the place. Until I got off the ship, and then all of a sudden I felt like, whoa, hold on a second. It's because the ground was stable, right? We had some stability issues. And so what happened, my, my friend Brad Merrill, he was on a ship. <laughs> and they, they were on this cruise. Some of y'all saw this on the news. They were actually on this ship. And it's funny because one of his friends was like, man, I, I don't like cruises at all. And they finally convinced the guy to go on the cruise. And so he goes on the cruise, and he's on this ship. And listen, I'm not trying to discourage you from going on a cruise. This is something, this, this is not stuff that happens all the time. But what ended up happening was they were sitting in, in dinner, and all of a sudden the ship, like, turned almost on its side. Literally, they're on the ship, and people are holding on to banisters and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was a mess because what happened? One of the stabilizers went out. So what ended up happening was the ship wasn't able to stand firm. And so I, I share this story because, you know, you know, he, he's, you know anyway, I, you know, it was, it's crazy to think, man, that, that would have been, like, that would have rocked you, literally, right? <laughs> I mean, in, in a serious way, right, to have, and, and again, that's, that's similar to what life can be like if you don't have the one that stabilizes you. 
If you don't have Christ to be your stabilizer, then what happens? What happens is life can turn that way. You can almost capsize because of what? Because your stability is not where it's supposed to be. Our stability is supposed to be in Christ. And here's why this matters so much, church. Because stability is not just about you. It's not just about me. Stability is about the world in which we live. And here's what I realize is this, is that if our faith is fickle, our joy will be shifting and our light will be an inconsequential flicker in the ever-decaying moral darkness of our world. Let me say that again. If our faith is fickle, our joy will be shifting and our light will be an inconsequential flicker in an ever-decaying moral darkness of our world. Listen, we are living in a world that is continuing to decay more and more. We are living in a nation that has turned its back on God on so many levels. We dishonor God. We disrespect God. We sin against God, and it becomes normative. We have legislated immorality year after year after year. We continue to mock the God of heaven. We continue to laugh in the face of a holy and righteous God, and because of that, what we're moving in a direction towards judgment, whether we want to realize it or not. But the fact is this, church, that in the midst of all of that, we are called to be a light that shines brightly in the midst of a dark world. But if our faith is not stable, if we are not able to rejoice in the Lord, our lives are simply going to be a flicker in the midst of darkness. Somebody might have saw a moment of hope, but guess what? Because there wasn't something constant, because there wasn't something stable, there was no one to lead them to who? The Savior who can deliver. The one who has the answers. The one who is the truth. The one who is the life. The one who is the way to the Father. See, we're supposed to be that church. And if our joy is in other things, if our confidence is in other things, if our stability is in other things, we are going to have issues. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must be on guard, be on guard. against the enemies. Of our confidence. We must be on guard against the enemies of our confidence. Let's look at this here in, 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 verse, in, in verse 2. And so Paul says to do what? To rejoice in the Lord. And he says, for me to write the same things, verse 1, I'm sorry, for you is not tedious, but it is safe. And so Paul is saying, listen, I'm writing to you, I'm communicating, and there's debate whether he wrote another letter that we don't have or he's talking about what he's communicated to them before. The bottom line is Paul has communicated to them the, about these things he's going to talk about in a moment, which are these enemies to our confidence. And what Paul says here in verse 2, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And so Paul goes on to communicate in verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted for loss. And so Paul goes through this list of things that he can rejoice in, right? He talks about all this stuff. We'll look at that in a moment. But here's what we have here. If the enemy, and this is why this is so important, church, that we are on guard against the enemies of our confidence. Because if the enemy can persuade us to place our confidence in anything besides Jesus, he has led us to the doorway of idolatry. 
if he can cause us to have confidence in someone else or something else. And when I say confidence in someone else or something else, I'm not talking about like I trust my wife or you trust your husband or you trust your parents or you trust, you know. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about ultimate confidence. Because you should have some trust in some people. You should have some trust in some things. However, your trust cannot be ultimately in those things. The, the, the reason why you're able to trust that those things are going to work out or those things are going to be okay. Like I've been in marriage counseling and I've talked plenty of times. And I'm like, listen, here's the deal. The problem is it is not an issue of you trusting the person as much as it is with you trusting God. You see, when you can trust God, and, and listen, I'm not talking, and I, I want to I make this clear, I'm not talking about abusive situations, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about adulterous situations, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is just two people who can't seem to get along. Two people who, you know, they just, they, they rub each other the wrong way, they've been together for a long time, whatever the case is, and they can't seem to get things right, they can't seem to get on the same page, and she's like this, or he's like this, and the ultimate thing is this, it's not about he or she, it's about your trust in him. Do you trust God to move? And that, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about trusting. But here's the thing. The fact is this, is that you can idolize your spouse. You can idolize your parents. You can idolize your children. You can idolize your job. Come on now. You can idolize all of those things. You can put your ultimate hope and your ultimate confidence in those things. So it's important for us, and not just those things, but you can put your, your, your ultimate confidence in yourself as well. You can start to think that you're all that because you start looking at other people like, well, I'm better than them. <laughs> they, 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 they haven't arrived where I am. They're, they're not at the level that I am, especially, you know, spiritual things. Come on now. You know, you're sitting there and you know the Bible. Other people don't necessarily know the scriptures. You know, you're, you're passionate about Jesus. They're not passionate about Jesus. When I first became a Christian, I remember, man, I was like, I was so on fire for Jesus. I was in my word. I thought I was the only one that read my Bible. Come on now. I thought I was the only one that prayed. I thought all these people were a bunch of hypocrites. They're a bunch of lukewarm, manby-pamby Christians. Come on now. They weren't serious about the gospel. They weren't serious about Jesus. It wasn't true. And, 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 and so what happens is we have to be sure that our confidence is in Christ. So what are the enemies that Paul talks about? So there's three enemies. There are threefold here. The number one, the first one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. They're the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation. That's one group of people. And so when Paul says that in verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs. Evil workers, beware of the mutilation. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about religious people. Think about it. The dogs, according to the Hebrew people, dogs were people who were unclean. Dogs were people who were unrighteous. And you know what Paul is communicating? Paul is saying, hey, you know those people that are Jews, those people that think they're all that? Those are the dogs. It's a slap in the face. The people that think they're the cleanest, they're the dirtiest. Come on now. This is what he's communicating to them. Beware of those evil workers, those people who will call you to righteousness, but they're not living righteousness. Beware of the mutilation. And the mutilation, he's going to give you this comparison in a second because he's going to compare the mutilation to circumcision. Because what does he say in the next part of that verse there? He says, beware, I mean, in, in verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. So the mutilation is those who are beating their bodies. Uh, uh, instead of them honoring God the way they're supposed to, they are the ones who are beating their bodies in a way that they think that that's where righteousness comes from, but their righteousness is supposed to come from Christ. And so what does Paul say? For we, believers, those who are born again, those who have put their faith in Christ, we are the circumcision. 
Because what? It's not about external things. It's about something that God does internally. The beautiful, the beautiful thing is that what God does is he is the one who circumcises our hearts. He is the one who gives us a new heart. He is the one who gives us new desires. He is the one who changes us from the inside out. And so Paul says the first enemy would be those who are seemingly religious. And he goes on and says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. But then he introduces us to our second enemy. Is verse 3 in verse 4. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Look at Paul. He's like, listen, we have no confidence in the flesh. We shouldn't have confidence in the flesh because none of us is good enough to save ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. None of us is righteous enough to be able to stand before God and say, my righteousness has earned my way here. No, no, no. Paul is saying, listen, we have no confidence in the flesh. And however, if anybody thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I have more reason to be confident in the flesh. And then he goes to this list, which is our second enemy, which is the good works of the flesh. And look what Paul says in verse 5. He says this, he says, uh, in verse 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, verse 5. Look at this, he goes down the list of why he should be confident. He was circumcised on the eighth day, so he followed the law. His parents followed the law perfectly. Of the stock of Israel, he's a true Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin, so he's one of the, one of the special tribes of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he's not just Jewish, but he is, I mean, he is a Jew of the Jews now. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. I mean, this guy was top-notch, the, the most legalistic guy that you can think of that was applauded, right? A guy that knew the law. I mean, he had his, he, he had his doctor in ministry. I mean, this guy was the man that, he, that, that, that everyone in the religious community would desire to be. In verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. This guy was so passionate about God, so passionate about following God, that when he heard that there was another God or there was something that he understood to be a different God, he was persecuting, trying to kill the church. That's how holy this guy was. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now think about this for a moment. Paul is saying, I have all of these things in my resume. I could for sure have confidence in my flesh, and yet I shouldn't. And see, we can easily allow these enemies of our, uh, uh, these enemies to our confidence get in the way because we start to measure ourselves and we start to think, hey, man, I've arrived here. I'm pretty good at this Christianity stuff. I'm pretty good at following this Bible. I'm pretty good at doing what I'm supposed to do. And all of a sudden, our confidence becomes in us, not in Christ. That's the second enemy. The third enemy that Paul introduces us to here is in verse Verse 7, he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So the first enemy would be the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation, the seemingly religious people. The second enemy would be the good works of our flesh. And the third enemy is anything we are unwilling to lose for the sake of Christ. Anything that we won't count as a loss for the sake of Christ. So you think about it, social capital, promotion, personal comfort. Whatever it is, is there anything that you are not willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Because if there is anything that you are not willing to give up for the sake of Christ, that can become a thing that hinders your confidence in him and in him alone. You see, it's easy for us. When you think about Paul's list here, we think about the list and we're like, oh, those things don't really matter to us. They don't matter to us, but they matter to him. 
Because in those days, that was his social identity. That was his position. Those were the things that he had done in order to be promoted within the religious and social system in which he lived. And so imagine a guy going to school all of his life. Imagine a guy following a certain way of living all of his life. And and then all of a sudden, one day, he decides, you know what? I'm leaving all of that stuff behind that would have got me to the position I've been living for all of my life. I'm leaving it all behind for what? For the sake of Christ. This is what Paul does. Think about this. Would you do that? Living your whole life, going to, going, li- living, living a certain way, going to school for certain things, getting certain degrees, doing all kinds of stuff. And the Lord says, hey, I want you to do something else. Would you walk away from all of that for Jesus? I mean, because this is what Paul is saying that he did. He counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. See, here's the thing, church. The followers of Jesus must fight daily to live a life that is completely and fully dependent upon God. Our accomplishments, our abilities, our ambitions, the things that could give us the leg up must always be in subjection to the lordship of Jesus. Listen, there's nothing wrong with recognizing where you have been gifted. There is nothing wrong with recognizing where God has given you talents. There is nothing wrong with being successful in business. Praise God, we need successful people in business. We need people that are successful in the workplace. As a matter of fact, I believe this firmly, that if you are a follower of Jesus, God is going to, and you're following his will in a workplace situation, God is going to do what? He is going to give you favor. He is going to bless you. He is going to raise you up for what? For his glory and for his honor. And he's going to do it for what reason? so that we can, he can promote and continue advancing the kingdom through you in different ways. God is going to shine his light through you. There's nothing wrong with those things. However, when those things become ultimate things, there's a problem. And Paul was saying, listen, man, I've counted all things for loss for the sake of Christ. Here's my question. I'm going to ask this question again at the end. Where is your confidence? When you think about it today, where is your confidence? Where does your confidence lie? Does your confidence lie in something outside of who Christ is, or is your confidence firmly in him? The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, when Christ is our confidence, nothing compares to knowing him. When Christ is our confidence, nothing compares to knowing him. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. One of, my, one, of, one of my favorite portions in the book of Philippians. Paul says this. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, Christ the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I love it. Verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. When you look at these words counted, these, these are words that they, they have a, a, a transactional legal term to them. They're actually, he's saying, I count all things as a forfeit, as though I've given this up. I've, I, there is great loss to me. I've counted, he's, he's actually counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ. 
You see, for many of us, following Christ, and especially in our Americanized Christianity, following Christ is nothing more than saying a prayer. Simply saying a prayer, saying, Lord, I, you know, I'm yours, and hopefully you can add something to my life. It's not about losing everything. It's not about, you know, you think about, you know, we've had people that have come and spoken to us. It's not about us where we're, where we're losing our family because our family is all Muslim. And if we name the name of Christ, we're no longer part of that family. See, there's a certain cost to that. If you, if you have the choice, if you today were told, listen, you can renounce your Christianity or you can keep your job, which one would you choose? You see, if you were in a place where you had to make some serious choices about Christ and, and, and it was going to cost you your life for real, would you really follow him? Would it be as appealing to you to follow Christ? But Paul, he looks at those things and he says, you know what? He says, I've counted all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He made this crystal clear that he said, man, I've counted everything that I have. Everything that I have. And you know what? It's all worth losing to know Christ. Is that your heart today? That you'd be willing to lose everything. Lay everything down to know Christ. See, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not just simply coming to church. And listen, I love coming to church. I mean, come on now. I love worshiping together my brothers and sisters. I love to, to enjoy fellowship with the body of Christ. I love, love, love those things. But man, we have to be at a place where everything pales in comparison to knowing him. Where everything pales in comparison. I remember years ago, I, I, I'm reading through, I believe reading through this text and just being stirred and just saying, God, I want to know you. I mean, let me tell you something. It's not that I don't know God, but I want to know God. I want to know him. I want to know him intimately. I want to know him deeply. But I don't just want to know him for myself. I want to know him so the world knows I know him. Not because of me but because they see him in me. And that was Paul's heart. When Paul was communicating here, if we look at these words as he is saying, yet indeed I also count all things at loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He counted all of those things as garbage, as dung, that I may gain Christ and what? And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. So Paul was saying, I don't just want to be a good person. I don't just want to be a moral person. I don't want to be a person who just does good things. Paul was saying, I want, I want there to be something that is marked differently in my life. A righteousness that is not my own. A righteousness that I cannot produce. A love not just for my neighbor, but a love for my enemy. An ability to not just turn, to be hit one time, but to turn the other cheek. I want to live a life that brings glory to God. A life that shines brightly for the glory of Jesus. 
because of the one who died for me. This is what Paul was saying. I want my life to, to, to look, to reflect on the glory of God as nothing else. He says that which is not, not, not that which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and I love this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, that's the easy part. I want to know the beauty of God. I want to know the power of God. I want to know the wonder of God. But I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. So when we suffer, when we have hardship, when we have difficulty, can I tell you something? That's where we get to know Christ the best. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to go through hardship. But while Paul was incarcerated, while he was locked to the prison guard, Paul was in a place of suffering. He was in a place of hardship. And he was getting to know Christ. But he didn't just end there. He didn't just say, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. But I want to conform to his death. That's what he says. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know resurrection power. I want to know what new life is. But I also want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. In the midst of the hardship, I want to embrace God. I want to know God in the midst of suffering. I want to be able to go through this when my suffering is for Christ. I'm not talking about your suffering because you're a knucklehead. Come on now. Because it's easy for us to suffer because of our bad decisions. I'm talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. I'm talking about hardship because you said yes to Jesus, you said no to sin. That's the kind of hardship and suffering. And I want to be conformed to his death. In other words, I want to not live for myself. I want to live for the glory and for the honor of my Lord and my Savior. And he goes on and says, this, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying that I'm trying to earn my salvation, that, that, that I'm going to earn this. He already said that this thing was by faith, but he wants his life to be a reflection of the resurrection power of Jesus. You see, Paul's passion to know Christ, despite his circumstances, it should inspire us. Listen, he wanted to know Christ in a tangible way, to experience him and express him. Here's, here's what should happen. Righteousness granted should lead and result to righteousness lived. Because we have received the righteousness of Christ, because we have been justified by faith, what we should be doing is we should be living a life for the glory of God. We should be living a life that is a life of sanctification. Now just for a moment with me, can you imagine what the world would be like if one thing moved the heart of God's people and that was to know him? Can you imagine what marriages would be like? Can you imagine what parenting would be like? Can you imagine what, what every, look, you think about every, uh, every situation in our world. Think about your workplace and all the Christians that you may know. But just imagine what it would be like if every one of those Christians was living, God, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. You know what that would look like? It would look like people who are living for the vision of our church, which is to do what? To please God in everything they do. Because they would be so desirous to know him, they wouldn't want to offend him. They wouldn't want to dishonor him. They wouldn't want to disrespect him. They wouldn't disregard his word. They wouldn't compromise on truth. Because what, Lord, I want to know you. And here's what I'll say, church, is that we cannot allow our spiritual hunger and thirst to know God, to be satisfied by anything less than God himself. Because if we do, it will result in a misplaced confidence. When we allow anything, when we allow a person, when we, when we allow a thing, when we allow our own accomplishments, 
to be the thing that is ultimate in our lives, what we end up doing is we end up misplacing our confidence. And when our, when our confidence is misplaced, guess what? We go back. Our joy begins to wane. We cannot rejoice in the Lord because we're rejoicing in other things. And when you cannot rejoice in other things, guess what? Then all of a sudden, your joy is gone. Your happiness is not there. However, when you rejoice in the Lord... When you are rejoicing in who he is, when you are rejoicing in the redemption you have in Christ, when you are rejoicing in what he has done for you that you could never do for yourself, when you are rejoicing in that, you know what happens? Your joy is firm. And then you can be a light that shines in the midst of this world. And church, here's the deal. I want us to be a church that is a light in the midst of a dark world. I want us to be a church that when we live our lives, we're not living for ourselves, but we're living for the glory and honor of God. God calls us not to live for ourselves, but to live for his glory. And so my closing question, I said I would ask it again, where is your confidence? Where is your confidence today? Is your confidence in Christ is your confidence in the Savior? Is your confidence in what Jesus has done? Or is your confidence in something else? Where is your confidence today? If your confidence is not in Christ, today is a day, right now is a moment for you to repent, for you to humble yourself and say, God, forgive me for placing my confidence in other things, not you. And if your confidence is in Christ, then I would ask you to pray this day, God, let the joy of the Lord shine through my life. Let your light shine through me brightly, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, that this world would see a light that is shining, that is pointing straight to you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all pray together. Father, we thank you. And we do honor you today. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great, great mercy, God. And Lord, we humble ourselves and we ask you, Holy Spirit, may you speak to us today. Lord, speak to our hearts and let us know deeply, God, if our confidence is really in you. Are there areas where we are confident in other things other than you, God? Show us. Lord, give us grace to repent. Give us the grace not just to confess but to turn away from confidence in other things. And trust in you wholly and solely, God. We thank you. And for us, Lord God, that can say with, with assurance that our confidence is in you. Lord, help us to live as Paul lived, wanting to know you more. Help us to live as Paul lived, Lord God, wanting to experience you in greater ways. And help us to live as light that shines in the midst of a dark world. We pray this. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I'm going to invite the ushers or an usher forward. We're going to partake of communion in this moment.